This week on Life and Faith. I get this cold feeling in my chest, my hands go sweaty, and it's decision time. And the things that were running through my head at that time were essentially, do I keep my job or do I not keep my job? Raising a person, that's a complex task. They'd done the job. Local authorities had it underhand. This does seem to me like a very frightening situation. Wow, he's going to have this as a lifelong thing. None of us are doctors and we're all doing fine. This is Life of Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. Well, have you ever had to make an ethical decision that really cost you something? What were the consequences of that decision? Or maybe you decided not to make that hard decision. How did that make you feel? Well, today on Life and Faith, we are talking about the cost of sticking to our principles, the cost of doing the right thing or not doing the right thing. We'll speak with a novelist who has written some fiction about some very real situations, also a writer and speaker and commentator specifically on this issue. But first up, Mick Slatter is an executive director of an engineering firm these days. But when he was a young guy acting as a leading hand at a large commercial plumbing firm, he ran into a serious ethical dilemma where he was forced to make a stark choice. Now, Mick is a friend of mine. He told me this story years ago and it stayed with me. Here he is to tell it again. So, Mick, some years ago, you were working on a large building site in a kind of important role there. And I want you just to paint me a picture of the environment you were in, the people, the type of job, all that sort of thing. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess quite a typical construction environment. So we're probably going back now showing my age, maybe 25 years. So we're looking at an industry pretty rough and ready, which to some extent it is now, but obviously very male-dominated. A lot of alpha males, a lot of uh, spitting, cursing, singing, (laughs) loud music, um, and a lot of guys just doing their thing. So to fit into an environment like that at, you know, at the time I was probably 21 or 22, you really need to try and conform. So you find yourself um, almost like a chameleon. You sort of put on the bravado there's a lot, of, um, a lot of things that you wouldn't necessarily and a lot of behaviours you wouldn't necessarily carry home. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was a difficult environment. It was an intimidating environment for a young man. You're yeah. dealing with older guys who've got a lot more experience. And the provability isn't like that of an office environment where you can openly ask questions when you don't know something. You get told what to do and you do it. And if you don't do it well, you cop, cop it. You cop it. Yeah. Yeah, you cop it. Yeah, no, I'm getting, I'm getting the picture. Now, in your time there, there was a moment, there was a significant accident on this building site. There was some serious damage and it was going to be costly. Just tell us what happened with it. What was that? So the accident was there was a significant leak. So it was a leak that caused a lot of damage. The origin of the leak wasn't known because the construction at the time was at a place called wall closure. So everything was closed and concealed. So all we knew was that there was a massive leak in a wall um, somewhere on one of the upper apartments and it caused a significant amount of damage down the tower. So the bill attached to that and the gravity attached to that it was significant, you know, it was, yeah. it was like $100,000, you know. Now, you were asked to attend a meeting regarding this situation and your boss at the time asked you to do something at that meeting and you were feeling a bit uncomfortable about that. What, what was going on there? Yeah, 100%. I wasn't a junior, I was kind of a cadet leading hand so it was kind of getting a hint into the leadership team and you had the trust of the management and the you know the the plumbing group owner and it was quite a it was quite a step for me I was quite young 
Anyway, so I was going to the construction meetings at the time. And just prior to the construction meeting, it was kind of an explanation meeting, like what the heck happened kind of thing. Yeah. And just prior to the meeting, I had a, had a discussion with my foreman and he handed me uh, three sections of pipe with screw holes in them. Um, and he told me um, in no uncertain terms that this was the cause, but I got the inference that that wasn't the cause. Yeah. Um, and he said, you need to tell them that this was the cause because such and such didn't pinch a coupling or there was an open-ended pipe or it was some kind of mistake that we had. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was clear to me at the time that, that wasn't the cause. And it caused me a lot of conflict internally. So you go to this meeting. I'm already feeling the tension, Mick. Mm. You sit down, you've got this kind of ethical dilemma. What are you going to do? Tell us what happened. Um, at that age, I didn't understand what my stress response was, but retrospectively, I understand what it is. I get this cold feeling in my chest my hands go sweaty and it's decision time. And the things that were running through my head at that time were essentially, do I keep my job or do I not keep my job? And looking at the people that I'd grown relationships with across the table, people were banging their hands on the desk and saying, why did this happen? What's going on? At the time, I just probably got very emotionally overwhelmed and I just went, you know what? I wouldn't lie to my boss and I can't lie for them. So I thought if I'm going to walk out of this room knowing that I've put these pieces of pipe which I had in my pocket on the table and let someone else ride that out, the implications for me personally were too heavy. Yeah. So I kind of made the decision at the spur of the moment. It was, no, um, it was no great leap and I didn't go, oh, I'm going to stick it to the man. I kind of just went, you know what, that's not for me. And if that's what I'm going to be asked to do as part of this role, then maybe I need to rethink, you know. So I just, I just said to the guys, hey, look, you know, we discovered that there was a problem on the rough-in on level nine or whatever it was, and I'll get Pete, who was my foreman at the time, to, uh, to fill the gaps, but this is what I know. So, you know, and I gave the reason that I, that I fronted and shone the light on him was I'd be perfectly happy if he was to explain that, but I wasn't willing to do it, yeah. and, and that was the thing, and that was kind of how it landed. And I copped it. <laughs> absolutely copped it in the meeting in like and when I walked out like it was just an amazing unpredictable cacophony that that caused Mick tell us about the consequences of you not being prepared to do what you're being asked to do what happens the immediate consequences were intimidation playing to fear not being part of the cool kids anymore um in a good way, speaking of the negative consequences, in a good way, there were a lot of good consequences that came of it later in life. But the immediate consequences for me in the weeks that followed was I was downgraded and separated to what they called the site, which was the launching pad. <laughs> and then I think it was about, I, I got moved off that site from one of the prodigies to one of the bottom feeders. The low, so you yeah, were, you were and then the I was asked... Bottom to, of the run. Yeah, I was asked to dig holes. And then about two weeks after being on that site, I got released. So nice. within a month, I was looking for a job. When you think back to that moment at that time, now, it's a few years later, mm. how do you feel about it? How do you process that? When I look back on it, it was a significant turning point. I think it was a good anchor point for me in a lot of ways through my own belief systems and through my own growth as a man to decide that you can be strong. And at times that has consequences. But if they're consequences that you get because you've made the right decision, it makes them more bearable. And the consequences of making the wrong decision, they're kind of unbearable. So consequences are more palatable when you know you're in the right. 
But if you've got the extra gravity of guilt because you've done something wrong, that's a consequence I don't feel like I want to have. That's Mick Slatter, who I'm pleased to say got another job and is doing well these days. Now, the idea for this episode came to us when Max Jeganathan wrote an article for CPX that appeared online at Eureka Street. And it was all about the cost of living going up and relating that to the cost of our principles. Max focused on sanctions against Russia in their invasion of the Ukraine, a price that we're all paying, but at least in this situation, seem happy to pay. I spoke with Max from his home in Singapore. In your article, you write about the New York Times columnist and economist Thomas Friedman back in 1999 saying that McDonald's is the secret to world peace. What did he mean by that? I've always found that Thomas Friedman's observation on McDonald's really, really fascinating. His idea was in his book, The Lexus and the Olive Tree, he was writing about globalization and how important and positive a force globalization could be. And one of the observations he made was that no two countries in human history had ever been at war, provided that each of them had a McDonald's. So no two countries with McDonald's have ever been at full-scale war since they both got their McDonald's. And it's kind of a a cute observation, but the point, of course, is that he's using McDonald's as a proxy for consumer capitalism, for free markets. This idea that the more that we are buying and selling from each other and that we are buying and selling the same stuff, in this case, Big Macs and milkshakes, the less likely we are going to be to go to war with each other. And so his idea and the idea of a lot of pro-globalization neoliberals at the time was that this is the way that we are going to avoid war. We are going to secure world peace by buying and selling from each other. International trade and international commerce, as per Friedman and many, many others at the time and since, was going to be this silver bullet to secure global peace. So there's a bit of truth, wasn't there, to the adage? Yeah, look, there was. When he said it, there were some minor exceptions around the fringe of what he was saying. And we've seen conflicts in the Balkans and the Baltics and civil conflicts in other countries in parts of uh, Africa and Asia and so forth. But broadly speaking, he was absolutely right. No sovereign nations had been at full-scale war with McDonald's, either up until that point or since that point, until, of course, February of this year, (laughs) when when Russia went into the Ukraine. Right. Yeah. So the recent events uh, get in the way of this theory somewhat. Yes, yes, that's right. And I think you can really draw a line. I mean, Friedman made his observation in the late 1990s, but you could arguably draw that line from the post-war reconstruction since financial markets have been deregulated and since global trading and manufacturing has been flowing in the way that it has over the last 50 or 60 years. Friedman's observations have held true right up until this February. And that's why Russia going into the Ukraine is significant because we know now that this idea that international trade, international commerce, buying and selling consumer capitalism is just not the silver bullet that I think many of us were hoping that it was and that Friedman had largely correctly identified it as being. It feels a little one-dimensional, that theory, and it's got some real-life problems at the moment. Now, your broad point is that while we often hear that humans are driven by economic self-interest and that will be their chief motivation, it's not always the case. Now, sometimes... We're prepared to put principle ahead of profit. And your point is that the Ukraine and our response to that collectively is a good example of it. Yeah, that's exactly right. I I don't think people for a second 
have been saying that money is the key or profitability is the key or it's the only thing that drives people. I think that's a bit of a reductive and, and unnuanced observation. I think most people, if you ask them on the streets, not just now, but over the last 50, 60, 70 years, would say, oh, there's obviously much more to happiness. There's much more to life. There's much more to why we are here than money. And yet so much of the world that we have built for ourselves, for better or worse, revolves around profitability, revolves around the accumulation of wealth and the generation of wealth and capital. I mean, that's where capitalism gets the word capital from. It's an ism that's built around generating wealth and generating capital. And yet through this war, what we have seen, not just through the war itself, which shows that we need more than McDonald's to have peace, but the sanctions regime has been so broad-ranging and significant, and probably the most interconnected and globally impacting sanctions regime in human history, arguably, because our world is so interconnected. So these sanctions are not just affecting Russia, they're affecting everyone. And we see that in food and energy inflation and supply chain constraints and all kinds of things. And yet nations like Australia and many others continue to stand in support of Ukraine and in support of these sanctions that are not exclusively, but are certainly playing a very large part in the rising cost of living globally. And I think that really says something. The fact that so many people from so many countries across the world are standing in support of these sanctions and standing with Ukraine, even to the detriment of their own hip pockets. Yeah. Do you find that somewhat encouraging? I find it quite refreshing. Yeah, Mm. I, I really do. Because I think many people, particularly in Australia, the Australian media loves to talk about, particularly after elections, the average Australian voter or the average Australian (laughs) taxpayer as a hip pocket voter. Now, I remember many elections We in the 90s, we had, you know, the interest rate elections and we had campaigns that were largely centred around mortgages. GST elections. GST election, Mm. cost of living elections, you know, you name it. And yet, even in the midst of all of that, and I'm not saying that that was completely without point and without basis, but there is clearly more to the story. There is more to the Australian taxpayer. And that's where that line and that observation by the great writer Marilyn Robinson is so beautiful. And she talks about how we have to be really careful when we reduce each other just to taxpayers. We are actually much more than that. We are citizens as well. And that's coming through encouragingly. Now, in your article, you write about the fact that Adam Smith, people know about this, that wrote The Wealth of Nations, but he also wrote this essay, less well-known, called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Now, in that, he makes the point that free markets, yes, beneficial, we need those, but they do require moral frameworks to ensure human flourishing. Now, that was a really interesting point. And Max, what's your sense of where we get these moral frameworks from these days? I mean, people in the West particularly have moved away from institutional religion, but there's perhaps a legacy there. I think that's absolutely right. I think it would be a little reductive to just say that these moral frameworks come exclusively through the Judeo-Christian moral tradition, but Mm. there is definitely a legacy there. There is definitely cultural, economic, social, and moral influence that comes from a Judeo-Christian moral tradition and a moral framework. And to completely ignore that, I think, would be a failure to understand a big chunk of the reality of history and why we are here. But I think the most important point is that 
people are looking for moral absolutes, that people are grasping for those moral frameworks, and people instinctively do construct them when we are dealing with amoral institutions like financial markets or like global political and economic systems. In a world where we are increasingly told, not by everyone, but we're increasingly told that you know, there's no such thing as absolute moral truth. Everyone's got to find their own truth. You do you, your best self, your best life. We're told mm. that all ethics is fluid and relative. And yet there is this constant grasping at human instinct for what is right and wrong. And we see something like what is happening in the Ukraine and people just stand together and say, this is wrong, which is not meant to be possible in a post-truth world. And yet it's where we all are. Now you cite Jesus' words, what good is it to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? Now, there's a profound sense that for most people, there is moral weight to our decisions that goes beyond only self-interest. We might have some self-interest, but there's more than that, isn't there? Sometimes there's a price to pay for doing the right thing, even when it's costly. Perhaps in those moments, we're holding on to something more important, uh, something we sense is really essential to who we are as human beings. Right. Absolutely right. There is a human yearning and longing for the manifestation of principles and the actualization of what is right and wrong beyond the metrics of success that the world serves up to us. And those metrics are pretty obvious, you know, in Western democracies and in developed societies, it's about, you know, health, education, financial and employment outcomes. That's what we want to optimize. And so those metrics of success are conceptually very easy to understand, not so easy to strive for and achieve always. And yet in the midst of all of that, When we look at what people are willing to do for principles that may well work against or detract from these metrics of success, we see that there is more to being human. There is more to what people want out of life than purely just to be successful in a financial sense. And refreshingly and encouragingly, people are willing to take a hit financially and people are willing to take hits in many other aspects of their lives on occasion and more often than we would give them credit for to stand up for what they believe to be true and right in a moral sense. And so there is a cost to having principles and thankfully people are willing to pay them perhaps more than we give them credit for. This is Life and Faith and today we're talking about the cost of principles, the cost of doing the right thing. The Tulip Tree is the second novel for Suzanne McCourt. Her first book, The Lost Child, was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award. The Tulip Tree, inspired by the lives of Suzanne's husband's family, tells the story of brothers Henrik and Adam Radecki, a tumultuous relationship to say the least, set in an equally tumultuous period of Polish history, spanning revolution, two world wars, concentration camps and Russian occupation. Now, some themes in this story really connect with our attempts to consider the price of altruism and also the complexities and ambiguities of morally courageous behaviour. Well, originally I was inspired by my husband's father, who was a Polish vet in the Russian army. And he lived from family hearsay an incredible life. Um, He was pulled into the First World War. As you mentioned, he survived the Russian Revolution. Poland, which had been wiped off the map, was reclaimed as a nation after that. He returned to Poland and had a period of peace and growth with the new country. Then the Germans invaded the Second World War he lived through 
and then the Soviets invaded. And I was absolutely <laughs> stunned as to how a family could survive that. How could they live and love and marry and raise children, educate them and survive such a, a lifetime compared with the lifetime of myself in Australia, which is very tame in comparison. That's amazing when you think of all those, you put those things together, isn't it? That they've endured the most incredible period of history, really, with all those different trying and testing experiences. It made, it made for an extraordinary life. It certainly did. And um, I think I went into writing this story thinking that um, as it became more and more fictionalised, that it would be uh, full of heroic deeds and perhaps villainous characters. Yeah. And yeah. instead I came to understand that life is incredibly fragile and that people who live through times like those and no war and hunger and that they can lose everything, that the strength they find is incredibly contagious and that within the family unit, that unit becomes part of a, a larger community and a nation and that within that people find a great deal of common strength. And I think, well, my story begins with the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine 100 years ago. <laughs> and Amazing, was, isn't it, when you think about what's going on now? Thinking how little we learn from history. Um, so here we have it happening again. And I see parallels too with the pandemic that here in Victoria, we were asked to join the longest lockdown in the world. And as a, a group, we believed that that joining together would provide a common strength. Um, and at the time it did. And I think we live better together as families and as communities and even as nations driven by a common good, often at great cost to ourselves. And we can see that right now in um, Ukraine. Now, this is picking up on a theme for our episode this week where you do, in your book, have some heroic examples of altruism where someone really does put themselves out in order to serve someone else in great need. There are also degrees of altruism in, in this story too, which I found fascinating actually. Uh, can you talk us through a few that are there in the story? Well, I think sometimes they're very surprising degrees of altruism. My story focuses on two brothers within this family, Henrik and Ardi. Ardi is a vet and basically a fairly truthful, concerned family man. Henrik, his brother, is um, a very ambitious engineer who has become a company director. And his morality might well be question, particularly as he um, lusts after his brother's wife and uh -huh. proceeds along that path. At the same time, during the war, he's um, in Warsaw and he comes across a bundle of rags um, on the footpath that people are stepping around. And initially he steps around that bundle as well. And then he goes back and picks it up, thinking that it's a dead child and it shouldn't be just left there. But when he hurries away, he discovers the child is alive and it's a Jewish child. And during the war, the death penalty was available for everyone who in any way assisted a Jewish person. So a great risk to himself and his family, he took that child in, saved it, hid it, raised it for a period. 
And that act is often, you know, fairly inconsistent, I think, with his other behaviours. And towards the end of his life, he says, uh, you can't think when your belly is empty. You become an animal. You can't be brave. And yet here he was being exceptionally brave in that instance. Yes, it's, and he kind of, it's a, in a way, he's the surprising one in, in that he acts in that way. And that, that was a really fascinating part of the story. But there was also people who, well, maybe less heroic, but nonetheless important in the way that they turned a blind eye when someone else was risking their lives to save other people. Yes, one incident or event that permeates this story is based on fact. And my husband grew up in an apartment block of four apartments and it was right next door to the school he attended. When the Germans invaded, they took over the school as their barracks. And during the war, right next to these barracks, Eva Shemanska hid at least 50 people, people fleeing from the Gestapo, uh, Jewish people who were wanted. She hid them in her uh, father's apartment right next door to the school. Now, the other people in the apartment, my husband's family, they knew what was going on there. At one stage, she had 15 in this tiny apartment, in the cellar and in the rooms. And they would see people taking the air at night in the orchard. They'd hear babies crying. They'd see her at the station passing off children on either hand as her own. So they knew what was going on. They knew the terrible risk that she was running for them. But they turned a blind eye. In their silence, they were incredibly brave, incredibly courageous. So, yes, bravery is complex or courage is complex. We've been thinking a lot about the cost of doing the right thing or cost of adhering to your principles even when it's going to be really difficult Mm. some of your characters really reflect that others less so what's your sense of how we go with that like you've talked about the fact that we don't always know what we'd be like in extreme situations but is this something that you're trying to help us to think through so that we might in extreme situations hold on to our principles or what's really happening when you're writing that story what's the What's the aim in that part? I don't think it's trying to help you, the reader. I think the writer writes for themselves. And I'm trying to ask myself what I would do in those situations. How would I function? And then hopefully the reader takes the story and they can develop some insight from that into what they might do too. It does appear that in extreme situations, for example, war or occupation, there's a real test, isn't there, to how much you're willing to pay for your beliefs or your values. I wonder if you have some thoughts on that, given your story. Look, one of the characters in my book that really fascinates me is Clara, who was a guard in Ravensbrook, where one of the characters ends up imprisoned. And she's very much based on a real person that guard, I even use the same name. She lost her husband in the early days of the war. She had a son to raise, no income, no accommodation. So she took a job at Ravensbrook, which gave her a house outside the camp, education for her son and a salary. And she was certainly no angel, but she seemed to have a soft spot for the Polish women. And she helped them find jobs inside, the better jobs that would stop them dying during winter. 
And in Ravensbrück, the most horrific experiments were conducted on women and on a lot of Polish women. And many of them ended up limping and they were called the rabbits. And towards the end of the war, they wanted to hide what they'd been doing to these people. So they started shooting them, killing them off. And she stepped outside of her role, if you like, and stopped some of them being killed. She was immediately fired. She was immediately left with no income, no, no house, no support for her child. And after the war, um, when she was wanted for trial, she fled to Poland, where some of the Polish women that she'd helped hid her. And she was moved from church to church. And some of the other Polish women who'd survived were very opposed to what this group were doing. You know, they said she should have been back in Germany standing trial. Eventually, she did give herself up and she did stand trial. But the contradiction in what happened, in who was guilty and who wasn't, so complex. And I just think the complexity of life is quite beautiful. It's when we try to simplify things and everything's black and white that we lose what the truth is. Can I ask you about the title of your book, The Tulip Tree? It picks up on a, an episode in the story where there's some villagers who bring a dead tree into the town sort of square and then cover it in tulips. Uh, it's a lovely image that reappears in your book uh, lots of ways. And it's, am I right in saying it's sort of bringing together in a, in a very interesting way suffering and despair but also hope and real resurrection that's there? Well, yes, in its simplest form, when they decorate this tree, they go up into the mountains where tulips grow wild in that part of the world. In fact, further over in Siberia, where the first tulips were taken to the Netherlands, where they began selling, growing them and selling them. Um, so they come down from the mountains with barrow loads and baskets full of tulips. And this is a, a spring ritual where they erect a dead tree in the centre of the, the village and decorate it. They decorate themselves, they decorate the tree, but on the tree they only put red tulips, which I found fascinating. So where it's a rite of spring and it's a symbol of hope and new life, the red tulips to me also represent death and crucifixion. And Artie sees this tree and it stays with him throughout his life and in his most desperate moments he recalls that tulip tree and it gives him hope in dark times. Did you have more or less faith in human beings under pressure and in difficult circumstances as a result of your delving into this story? Much more faith, mm. much more, yeah. Mm. It enlarged my world hugely, which is a wonderful thing as a writer to find that it does. And I guess I've always been fascinated by loss and how people survive, what resilience is. And in writing this story, it just confirmed a level of hope that I have to have in my own life. And it gave me greater hope. It's an incredibly dark story in many ways and very challenging, but I believe in there is a hope in a greater good. That's Suzanne McCourt, author of The Tulip Tree. Now, to begin today, we spoke with Mick Slatter about a costly choice he made as a young man. And we'll finish with Mick explaining how he hopes to impart that kind of virtue to his own kids. My son was 
doing a little bit of knock and run around the neighbourhood years ago. Um, <laughs> and exactly the same thing, you know, it's a laughable thing, but it does interrupt people and it's a little bit annoying, but it's not, you know, it's not punishable by death by any <laughs> means. But consequence is a big thing in my house and every action that you have, you've got to understand if I'm looking at it from a different side through a different paradigm, you need to understand and have, have the ability to be able to understand how that feels and how people might think about that. So as a consequence of that, someone came running out, chased my son down the street, and I grabbed a hold of my son and, and walked him up the street, got him to tap on the door. I stood by the fence and I said, look, just apologise. That's all you've got to do, just apologise. And um, he stood in front. He was mortified. He was embarrassed. It was his friend's dad. It was just, it was an awkward situation. But we got home and... He came to me and he said, you know, I kind of understand that day. It was a bit crap, but I kind of understand that when you're doing something and it's a bit silly, you have to front the consequences. So I don't know if that's the anchor point for what I experienced, but it's definitely prevalent in my life. Like You have to understand that your actions do affect other people and just make sure that it's the right action that makes the right response and reaction. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. Thanks today to Max Jeganathan. Max is a speaker and writer at Thinking Faith and about to join us at CPX, which we are excited about. Suzanne McCourt is the author of The Tulip Tree. I recommend that book. It's a fabulous story and beautifully told. And thanks to Mick Slatter for revisiting a moment in his youth when he faced a very difficult choice. But in the end, made one that today he's glad he did. Thanks for listening to Life and Faith. Please do share this episode with someone you think might enjoy it and help spread the word about Life and Faith in the sea of podcasts that have sprung up around us while we've been making this program. We love that you are with us each week. Next time. We are still pretty free to protest, but look at the vigilance with which we respond when, say, a government starts to propose some controls on the right to protest. We say freedom to protest is under threat. It's exactly the same when it comes to freedom of religion.